Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Hello and welcome into the latest installment of the NucleCast podcast. I, of course, am your host, Adam Lowther, and it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Steve Simbala, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Penn State University Brandywine and a good friend of mine. Now, in 2020, Steve and I worked together on a book, and Steve wrote an excellent chapter discussing minimum deterrence. Now today, of course, that will be our topic for the podcast. And so let me turn it over to you, Steve. What would you say, or how would you describe minimum deterrence? Thank you, Adam, very much. And thank you, Jordan, for all uh, your help. And uh, the idea of minimum deterrence is that there are uh, a finite number of Weapons of intercontinental range. Uh, there's a small, finite number of weapons suffices for deterrence. And beyond that, other weapons are superfluous. So, for example, uh, the New START Treaty allows the United States and Russia each to deploy some 1,550 warheads on long range land based missiles, submarine launched missiles, and bombers. Okay, uh, some uh, strategists, including those at, uh, at the uh, Air War College, have argued that these numbers are in excess of what is necessary for deterrence. That in fact, you could, you could reduce uh, the number of weapons to the several hundreds on all sides. And because you only, uh, to, for deterrence to work, it's based on the ability uh, to complete a, a second strike retaliation following a surprise attack and to be able to inflict so-called unacceptable damage on the attacker. And according to minimum deterrence theorists, if you can destroy most of the major cities in the country and a good deal of its social infrastructure uh, that's enough, and you don't need to worry about uh, other kinds of damage or other kinds of missions. And, you know, the, the answer of minimum deterrence theorists to how much is enough is, you know, a couple of hundred of survivable weapons. Now, this, of course, is very much against what has been orthodox thinking in the uh, U.S. defense establishment going all the way back to uh, the 60s when we had great debates about this, starting with uh, McNamara as Secretary of Defense and moving on up to the uh, present. And basically, if you take uh, a continuum of options for what we call employment policy, that is, how these weapons will actually be targeted and used, as opposed to declaratory policy, that is public statements about our our intentions and capabilities. If we're looking at 
alternative employment policies, minimum deterrence is one end of the spectrum, okay? And then sort of toward the middle, you have assured destruction or assured retaliation, which comes in a number of varieties. And then finally, on the other end, you have uh, the quest for nuclear superiority, where you know you would be in a position to totally dominate any process of coercive bargaining or escalation, regardless of what what the opponent does. The uh, minimum deterrence then uh, presents itself as uh, the less least expensive and in the view of minimum deterrence theorists, least provocative of the nuclear strategies. But it has come under criticism. And one of the criticisms made against it is that uh, it provides uh, insufficient numbers of options, not only uh, for actual nuclear use, if it comes to that, but for uh, coercive bargaining. If your opponent thinks that you have, uh, what can we say, a uh, only one inflexible all-or-nothing response without any nuances, then that deterrence may not be as believable as a larger number of weapons with a wider range of options attached to them. The uh, predominant uh, employment policy that has... Uh, carried forward over the past four decades or so has been some version of assured retaliation. Uh, basically, that means the United States uh, has the capability to strike back after having absorbed a uh, first strike and to inflict uh, a ver damage, significant damage against a variety of target sets, including enemy nuclear forces, uh, enemy uh, conventional forces, leadership targets and command centers, and uh, also social and economic infrastructure. In addition, uh, depending on which variant of assured retaliation or assured destruction you're looking at, there are also uh, significant uh, special options set aside for regional or lower level, less than intercontinental conflicts, uh, uses in, you know, perhaps a regional conflict in Europe or Asia. And that's been the official so-called uh, U.S. government's uh, employment strategy for uh, most of the nuclear age. And then, of course, there are, especially during the Reagan years, there were strategists who pushed hard for a strategy of nuclear superiority as an alternative to either assured destruction or minimum deterrence. And the those advocating nuclear superiority said that the United States needs a, a uh, nearly leak-proof missile defense system combined with offenses that can dominate a process of escalation at any level. In that case, then, we would be uh, in an advantageous position in any situation of nuclear crisis management or nuclear bargaining, because the whole idea, of course, is not actually to have to fight a nuclear war, but to prevent a nuclear war by means of deterrence. But the paradox is that in order to, for your deterrent to be believable, you have to make the other side, you have to persuade 
the opponent that uh, you really uh, could use it in a flexible and continuing manner should deterrence fail. Now, let me ask you a, a question when it comes to minimum deterrence. So you repeatedly use the term minimum deterrence theorists. Now, for me and you as trained political scientists, we see theory as something that you develop prior to having the empirical support to prove your theory true or false. So what evidence would advocates of minimum deterrence rely upon to support the idea that minimum deterrence is the best course of action for the United States? Well, advocates of minimum deterrence would, I think, join with uh, Kenneth Waltz in arguing that even a small nuclear force is so frightening to policymakers, first of all, and their military their military advisors. And in addition, the specter of nuclear war is so scary to mass publics that you don't need a large number of nuclear weapons, a small but survivable uh, guaranteed second strike retaliation would keep most people from uh, pushing the nuclear button. They would point, for example, to uh, the relationship between India and Pakistan is there any empirical support for for this? I mean, it sounds it sounds logical, but is there empirical evidence that the way, you know, not only that this will work, but but my concern with minimum deterrence is often that we might be mirror imaging our adversaries, who may be much more risk tolerant. So, is there any empirical evidence that minimum deterrence will work, and are we mirror imaging our adversaries? Well, I think the the uh, the best case, you know, the empirical evidence for minimum deterrence lies in the fact that no small nuclear power has yet fired a nuclear weapon in anger, and so you could argue that, uh, you know. But the problem with minimum deterrence in that respect is this: that you know we can we can do modeling and simulations, and we can show that one of the risks of nuclear of minimum deterrence is that you have, uh, you know, you have no margin for error. I mean, if you miscalculate and you turn out not to have enough to survive a first strike and strike back, uh, game over. You don't have any resilience. You don't have any flexibility. So you're betting the whole farm that everything is going to work, that all those uh, submarine-launched missiles and uh, all your land-based missiles and all your bombers, it's all going to work in sync. And uh, the friction that Clausewitz wrote about uh, won't take place. Whereas we know from military history that, you know, Murphy's Law is out there. And, you know, what can go wrong will go wrong. And so the likely betting on a minimum deterrent is really a best case bet in that most uncertain of activities, war. Now, before we turn to the issue of mirror imaging, which I'd really like to get your opinion on, because it's something I'm very um, concerned about, the idea that our, we mirror image our adversaries and think they're as reasonable and rational as we are. 
But before we do that, we have to take a quick break. Uh, this podcast does have sponsors. And so with that, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with Steve Simbala to talk about minimum deterrence and mirror imaging. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the ANWA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. So we're back to welcome into NucleCast, and I am, of course, your host, Adam Wilder, and we are discussing minimum deterrence with Dr. Steve Simbala, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Penn State Brandywine. Now, before the break, I had asked you what you think about mirror imaging, a concern I have, that we look at our adversaries and we, we see ourselves in them. And we think that our values are their values. Do you see this as problematic or do you see this as, as a concern that I need to lay aside? No, absolutely not. I think a Harvard professor named Stanley Hoffman, which used in a different context, used the term Ptolemaic parochialism. And I think that that applies to absolutely throughout the whole Cold War. We mirror imaged our nuclear strategy onto the Soviets. And were surprised when they didn't behave like American nuclear strategists. And we're doing it again, of course, with post-Cold War Russia and with China. And we don't we need to step back. And and uh, I have my students this semester reading Sun Tzu. And one of the points is understand that a different culture is going to produce a different way of war. It's not just about military art per se, but the, the uh, and even now, for example, I think that much of the dialogue between the United States and Russia, we're trying now, the Biden administration is trying to revive nuclear arms control talks, and they're having expert panels meet together. And one of the things I hope that will come out of that is precisely understanding how the Russians and Americans think differently about strategy based upon their history based upon their culture, you know, and there's, uh, there are many examples of this, but you know, the, the, uh, when the Cold War ended, NATO in the Cold War years was 16 countries. We expanded NATO since then to 30 countries. Now you're sitting in Moscow and you're looking at this, right? And you've got a history of being in, having been invaded from the West Again and again and again. Obviously, you know, this is going to be a sensitive issue with somebody like Putin. So occasionally you need to put yourself in the other guy's pajamas and say, look, you know, uh, how, how's, what's the view from Moscow or what's the view from Beijing? This is not to excuse anything they do, but you have to understand their perspective. And of course, China 
which, you know, for centuries was essentially, uh, well, shall we say, marginalized in the international system, now sees itself as a rising power. They see the United States as in their way. So we are Athens and they are Sparta. And the next step is, you know, to uh, build into the world's biggest global economy, and then on that foundation, push the United States off its pedestal as the world's leading military power. But the Chinese, you see, are doing this in a way that's very unique and very smart. They are not, for the most part, openly staging military confrontations with uh, with other large military powers. What they are doing is buying up the planet, okay, waging culture war and cyber war, right, and nibbling at military objectives, like building up uh, reefs in the South China Sea, you know, and buzzing Taiwan with fighter bombers and, you know, other things that and if you go back and, and if you think about this, the the Chinese uh, culturally have always shown a great deal of patience and a willingness to look at the long view. And their view of strategy is very holistic. It is all about, you know, it's not about should we build this weapon system? Can we afford? They've got a long range plan and they're moving slowly to implement it. They're already thinking about where they want to be in the year 2050. And you can see that in their space program, in their cyber program. And of course, all of that's going to connect directly or indirectly to their nuclear deterrent. So you make a great point, Steve. And one of the things that, uh, you know, sort of been interesting to watch as a political observer is that for the arms control community, which you know, they clearly advocate minimum deterrence, is that they thought with the incoming Biden administration that we would see, for example, the elimination of GBSD as a follow-on to the Minuteman 3 ICBM, and then this rather significant reduction, you know, uh, in the, the total size of, of the U.S. arsenal, whether the Russians were willing to go down or not. Because, like you've laid out, the, the view of the arms control community is that minimum deterrence works. Now, the funny thing about uh, our adversaries is that they get a vote, and both the Russians and the Chinese have been modernizing and expanding. You know, we've seen lots of really interesting and somewhat shocking actions from the Chinese in terms of building new ICBM silos and some of the technological developments. We think that the Russians, for example, are engaging in uh, nuclear testing, low yield, but still nuclear testing. They're developing new systems and capabilities and warheads. And so it seems that our adversaries have been unwilling to cooperate in our desire to go down to a minimum deterrent, which has, of course, been... Uh, disappointing, perhaps, for the arms control community. Do you see the activities of our adversaries as making 
uh, minimum deterrence and you know the elimination of GBSD, for example, as something that is just untenable. Yeah, I think your analysis is spot on. I wish it were otherwise. You know, I wish the climate for uh, some, I don't favor a total minimum deterrence policy, but I do think we could come down slightly, that is the U.S. and Russia, from the new start level, perhaps to a thousand uh, warheads deployed on long-range weapons on each side. But as you point out, the problem is nobody, nobody uh, who currently has a nuclear arsenal is talking about giving it up or embracing, uh, you know, a concept of uh, their own version of minimum deterrence. And the Chinese and the Russians are full speed ahead on modernization of their nuclear deterrence. In addition to that, you have the threat now of hypersonic weapons, which will reduce the amount of time between uh, the launch of an attack and its arrival on target. And so the... the uh, and the, much much of the debate, I think, confuses the issue of nuclear modernization, confuses quantitative and qualitative issues. The reason we have three different legs of the triad, as you know, is not necessarily to build up the numbers of weapons, but rather to complicate the attacker's estimate of the situation. The attacker has to go after three different kinds of forces, regardless of their number, land-based missiles, uh, submarine-launched missiles, and bombers. And each of those forces has different properties that add to deterrence. And so if you're an attack planner wanting to strike the United States, you've got to expend enough warheads to neutralize all three of those arms of the triad. And whether you're at 1,550 warheads or... or a smaller number, and so it it would uh, certainly seem unwise for the United States to unilaterally uh, disarm its land-based missile force while getting nothing in return uh, in arms control negotiations. Now, one of the things that we haven't really discussed thus far is, and I I tend to ask our guests, you know, this this question, and that is, so one of the few folks that sort of advocated nuclear superiority has been Matt Kronig, and he wrote a, a book a few years ago in which he examined all nuclear crises and hit that, you know, there was U.S., Russia, China, Russia, Pakistan, India, so you had a variety. There's 30 to 40, I think, and he essentially said that the country with the superior arsenal came out on top in the crisis. And, you know, essentially, it was that nuclear superiority matters. Now, you've been writing about nuclear deterrence and modernization and these issues for half a century now. Would you say that his assessment that superiority matters is correct? Or would you say perhaps he, he made a, a mistake in his analysis? What's your take on this idea of the impact and role of superiority? versus minimum deterrence? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And I think, you know, uh, you know, I, uh, I thought his book was an interesting book and a provocative uh, study. Uh, the problem with arguments for nuclear superiority uh, as he presents them is you cannot have nuclear superiority only 
with offensive forces. You need to have defenses that reduce the opponent's retaliatory strike to a virtual nullity. Only then can you be in a position to uh, impose nuclear superiority. And I'm talking now about two relatively equivalent opponents. Of course, the United States has nuclear superiority relative to North Korea, for example. Two more or less equal uh, opponents in terms of their arsenals, then it's it's the combination of offenses. You know, you have offenses and defenses, but the opponent only has offenses. That would give you a position of relative nuclear superiority. But we're still far from having defenses that technically can compete. That may change going forward. Uh, we're on the threshold of new technologies that could improve defenses. All kinds of things, uh, interesting ideas. And then you might see one or more sides trying to make a big push for build up offenses and deploy clever defenses as a way to get uh, either space-based defenses or some people are looking at drone swarms for defending ICBM fields. And or attacking them. ICBMs could be very susceptible to a, a drone swarm. That's, yeah, that, that is, that's a scary thought, but yes, that's right. That's right. It's, uh, it's, some technologist is always undermining all of our assumptions. You know, just, that's one of the interesting and challenging and frustrating things about the field we're in. Now, before we end, because we're at the end of our, our podcast, I want to ask you one question that sort of takes us off in a different direction. Now, here recently, you and I have been doing some work that looks at GBSD and advocates for the development of GBSD. So if you could, in perhaps one minute, uh, can you explain what is the rationale for continuing forward with the development and fielding of GBSD? Well, the argument is that diversity works, even in nuclear weapons. You know, having a land-based missile force complicates the attacker's calculation as opposed to only having two arms of the triad, number one. And number two, the air, the jeep, the land-based missile force compared to other components of the triad is fast, responsive, uh, and, and accurate. Okay. And uh, in addition to that, I would not just go forward with the existing plan. You know me, I would I would put at least 300 land-based missiles out there and make 100 of them mobile. And when I talk about mobile land-based missiles, the answer I get is, well, we tried that in the Cold War. It's not feasible. There's too much uh, fuss about, you know, uh, environmental concerns. But my goodness, the United States has a train network second to none. It goes all over the continent. And uh, you can... The, the Russians have rail-based mobilized CBMs. The Chinese are putting them in tunnels on rails. So there's no reason why we shouldn't think about having, say, 100 out of 400 or 100 out of 300 mobile land-based missiles, which would further complicate the attacker's calculation. And without any additional, well, there'd be an additional expense, but my goodness, the railroads are there. You could make them road mobile, too, if you wanted but uh, so I, I wish we'd give that another look. But that just shows what an old trouble guide I am. 
And with that, we will uh, end the show. So thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us on the Nuku Cast. And we will look forward to seeing you next time. And thanks, Steve, for being with us. Thank you.